and it was a lesson to me in the extremities of the circumstances which leads people to go to war and to pick up arms, but also then of the courage and determination which is needed to take the step the other way and move from war to peace. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With me today is Teresa Whitfield, whose career has tracked the major developments in the field of mediation. She supported some of the most high-profile peace efforts of our day, including in Libya, El Salvador, East Timor, Guatemala, and Colombia, to name a few. Today, she finds herself at the forefront of global peacemaking initiatives in her role as Director of the Policy and Mediation Division at the United Nations in New York. Teresa Whitfield, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you, Adam. It's great to be here. You started your career in the 1980s, working as a journalist for a TV program in the UK. Tell me more about that. I'd done a master's in Latin American studies, and then I was drifting around in a fairly aimless way when I was approached to work on a television show because I spoke Spanish, and the television show, which was called The Media Show, was wanting to do a profile of Pedro Almodovar, who just emerged with women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. And my first day at work, I was told to find Pedro Almodovar, who was in the Venice Film Festival. My second day of work, I went to Venice to meet him and set that up. I gained the reputation because I'd done the Latin American masters of somebody who was kind of good at travel. So I began to be sent to all sorts of interesting places. And they wanted to do a story on Latin America. And I suggested that if they wanted Latin American stories, then they should send me to the Havana Film Festival. In those days, everybody from the media, politics, who was anybody in Latin America, went to the Havana Film Festival. And while I was there, I had an extraordinary meeting with somebody called Cesar Martí, who was the head of Sistema Venceremos, which is the FMLN guerrilla insurgency at that time. He spent, I think, two or three hours with me explaining what was going to happen, really, in, in 1989, how 1989 would be a critical year for El Salvador. And he told me very indiscreetly about a, a large offensive. He didn't tell me when it was going to be, but the guerrillas were planning the largest offensive of, of the Civil War, which would either win, some of them thought that they could win militarily, or if not, would help force the negotiations and allow them to go into negotiations in a stronger position. And that turned out to be exactly what happened. And that, that, that meeting really propelled me to be working on El Salvador for the next few years and was a turning point for me. You arrive in El Salvador during a critical time. The civil war is raging between the government military junta and the Farabundo Mati National Liberation Front, FMLN, a group of leftist guerrilla organizations. Violence escalates. And in November of 1989, the government kills six Jesuit priests and you get to work on a documentary about the massacre. How did those experiences as a journalist shape what was going to become a career in mediation? By producing a documentary on the murder of the Jesuits and its implications, I was drawn into what was a fascinating dynamic playing out, which was the move from the guerrilla offensive of 1989, which had brought the war to the capital and had demonstrated a military stalemate in the conflict towards negotiations. 
And so for the next couple of years, I lived in El Salvador and I researched uh, the reasons why the Jesuits were killed. And the Jesuits were killed because they had been advocates of negotiation and yet were perceived by many in the army to be aligned with the guerrillas. So I produced a documentary and I was very enmeshed in the story and realized I had access across the political lines to the army, to the government, to the political parties, to civil society, to the guerrillas, and stayed to write a book. And the experience of, of those few years in El Salvador was a really critical education for me. I remember in particular, a meeting I had with a guerrilla commander, commander of the FMLN, Jesus Rojas was his nom de guerre. I spent, I think, about 10 hours with him up near the border in Honduras. We got stuck because there was fighting, and so I couldn't get back to where I was supposed to be. Heard his entire life about the radicalization, what had led him to join the guerrillas, how he was very much a proponent and a leading figure within the peace process to end the war and the challenges of sort of explaining the courage and the steps required to move from war to peace and what that involved. And then three weeks after that, he was killed in an ambush. That had quite a strong impact on me. And what did he say when he was trying to explain that transition from war to peace? It was related, of course, to the difficult transition and the decision to pick up arms. And it was a lesson to me in the extremities of the circumstances which lead people to go to war and to pick up arms, but also then of the courage and determination which is needed to take the step the other way and move from war to peace. You were there in El Salvador as a journalist initially. And you know, at that time across the world, the UN was stepping up its involvement in various yeah. regional peace processes. And in El Salvador, a mission arrives in the early 1990s to monitor various accords, including on human rights. What did you make of that? So I was interviewing the UN about the negotiations and was on the ground when the UN began to deploy and arrive in country. And I was offered work by the UN in its first mission when it first arrived. And to their absolute amazement, I turned them down. I was a sort of incredibly broke writer with a tiny grant to write a book, no contract, no known ability to write a book and nothing, nothing going for me really. And I said, no, thank you to, to the UN. But I watched the UN evolve and I ended up sharing a house with somebody who worked for the UN. So I knew the UN mission very well. It was a very positive introduction to the UN because the UN had played a critical role in the negotiations and had been widely appreciated by all sides. A few years later, you know, I finished the work on El Salvador, I moved back to London and then I had, was looking to move to New York and I did a number of, of sort of informational interviews with people in the UN. And it turned out that they were in 95 looking for a new desk officer on Central America. So I moved to New York to take up that role. And in retrospect, I knew very, very little about the UN. I knew everything mm. about El Salvador and all the intricacies of the politics there. Practically nothing about the UN. Probably couldn't really describe the difference between the Security Council and the General Assembly. And it was a, a bit of a rude awakening because I'd never worked in a big bureaucracy and my hiring was very bumpy. In fact, I was crying in the in the ladies room by lunchtime on my first day and nearly left. Why? I was hired and my contract hadn't come through properly. I was told to fly to New York to take up my contract. And then my first morning I had a meeting with human resources who yelled at me and told me I should never have come and that the, I had to pay for myself to go to Canada 
to re-enter the country and get a visa before I could be employed. And my boss, meanwhile, told me that the Secretary General was traveling to Honduras and El Salvador next week, and they'd been waiting for me to prepare his briefing book. So I was simultaneously on a plane to a really cheap hotel room in Montreal to get a visa while trying to write the Secretary General's briefing materials on my first and second day as it worked. Well, you know, you, you do find your feet, of course, eventually. And at that time of you, in, in addition to obviously you doing the work on, on specific issues concerning Central America, I'm conscious of the broader context, which was in the aftermath of some of the organization's most difficult moments. I'm thinking about Rwanda, Srebrenica. How did that affect your view of the UN sitting there in New York? It was a complicated time because, of course, it looked as if the initial heady optimism of the immediate post-Cold War period with El Salvador and Cambodia and Namibia and a sense that the UN was at the center of international peacemaking. Then you had the blows of the Balkans and Rwanda, and it looked like the UN would be kind of on the back foot and out of things. And then East Timor and the Kosovo happened, and suddenly there was the launch of a number of big UN operations. So it was a very, it was an exciting time um, and with, with a great deal going on, but a sense of insecurity and uncertainty about what exactly would the UN role be in this new emerging period. But then why in 2000 did you leave the UN? By 2000, I had two small children and I couldn't go to the field. All my contemporaries were going off to the missions in East Timor or Kosovo and moving out. And I couldn't do that for family circumstances. And there was a part of me that didn't like the prospect of, a, of an entirely headquarters-based UN career. And while I was out on maternity leave for my second child, I began to be offered different kinds of work. The Conflict Prevention Peace Forum was just starting up and I could see there was a more flexible existence for me at that point possible outside the UN than inside but I've sort of accompanied the UN, writing books about the UN from the Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum, working as a bridge between the UN and outside actors. Then I, later on, I worked for the HD Centre, doing liaison work with the UN. So I've, I've kind of worked with and around the UN for most of my career. You use that word being a bridge. What does that actually look like in practice? The Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum uh, was a particular job, trying to find those outside, whether it was academics, journalists, practitioners, members of civil society organizations who can distill and relate what their knowledge and learning and sometimes, you know, 30 years of expertise on a particular conflict, but will they be able to present in 10 minutes in a way that resonates with an undersecretary general who's got many, many things on his or her plate. When I was at the Conflict Prevention and Peace Forum, we were doing a lot of work in support of the UN in Nepal. And then I was asked whether I knew anybody who could speak publicly about the transition from an insurgent movement to a political party. And I went with a friend who was a Salvadoran academic, but who had been a commander in the FMLN, and he, he gave his lecture. And then we went and had a meeting with Prachanda, the leader of the Maoists, and Babarun Bhattarai, his right-hand man at that time, who have, were just emerging from clandestinity. And they were interested in hearing about the experience in El Salvador, and particularly the challenges of moving from an uh, active armed group into 
a political role. And so we had a long meeting. It was one of those sort of following a motorbike, changing cars, moving around and ending up in a small dingy hotel and sitting on two single beds with Prachanda and, and Basarai and uh, a Nepali colleague who was interpreting. And a fascinating discussion about the differences and the challenges of different armed conflict movements in different parts of the world and some of the challenges that once you get into government, it's much harder to hold a movement together than it is when you're fighting a war. Later on, you become interested in the conflict between the Spanish government and the Basque separatist organization ETA. And documents about that confidential process have been leaked to the Spanish media. You're keen to dig deeper. So you turned up in the Basque country in December 2008, but without a single phone number. What did you do? Zapatero, the prime minister of Spain, had started the peace process very controversially in 2005. The details of it had been leaked into the press. There'd been a series of meetings in Geneva that Center for Humanitarian Dialogue had facilitated, and it had all gone wrong. ETA put a large bomb in Barajas Airport in December 2006, and in 2007, the talks collapsed under the strain. So I was interested in writing about why it hadn't worked. And I reached out just through public channels, and I just began to talk to people. And in the summer of 2009, I had a really critical interview with Arnaldo Otegi, who was the head of Batasuna. It looked from the outside like it was a, a very grim, difficult moment. The peace process had collapsed. Zapatero had been accused of betraying the dead, even to try to talk to ETA. There was a complete disconnect between eradicating the terrorist band that was ETA and then on the other side, a kind of a resolution of the Basque conflict. And these things were very different and the talks had broken down under that. And then Arnoldo Otegi in the summer of 2009 described to me the beginning of an internal process by which the political wing was trying to assert its logic over the military wing and convince them that they would achieve their goals more effectively through politics than through maintaining the campaign of occasional terrorist killings, which was what they were doing. And eventually, to cut a long story short, in 2011, ETA declares a definitive cessation of its armed activity. What did you take away from that experience that might be relevant for other conflicts? I think we saw a couple of lessons. I think the first was that it was really difficult to solve a problem without acknowledging what it is. And the fact that there were competing views of what the nature of the problem was, ending as terrorism or resolving the Basque conflict made it really difficult. So it was pushed, pushed right down, but that a political dialogue of a very particular kind and, and politics was actually what brought about an end and it was political engagement. And you said this was very much away from the UN and, and you've had a number of different jobs outside UN structures, mm. one of which was as an advisor for the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, HD, where I also work now, transitioning from UN-led processes to the world of private mediation. How did you see those differences play out in your work? I've always been really interested in the different actors in the mediation field and sphere. And I've watched this evolve from early days when the UN seemed the center of the mediation game in El Salvador and other post-Cold War environments to 
a much more diffuse environment where there are many other mediation actors, regional organizations, individual states, non-governmental organizations, private actors like the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. With the fragmentation of conflict parties and the very complicated kind of regional and geopolitical tensions that surround most of the conflicts today, we've seen in many situations you, they're, they're benefit by different things happening at different levels and different tracks. Today, you're the director of the Policy and Mediation Division at the UN in New York, supporting the UN's envoys and country offices all over the world. When you look at the world today, compared to how it was when you first started in this field, do you think that ending war is harder than it used to be? Yes. I think we've moved from a moment where external forces were in favor of unwinding conflicts, and you had a relatively unified Security Council that was supporting the unwinding of conflicts, and those external forces had clear levers or influence over some of the conflict parties. And now we see most of the big conflicts that the UN is involved in, uh, or I'm thinking of like Yemen, Syria, Libya, many of the conflicts in Africa are embedded in extremely contested regional dynamics. And often there are external actors who are fueling parties inside conflicts. And then we have a fragmentation of armed groups. I think we've all in the mediation fields have to recognize that a lot of the tools, the sort of toolbox that emerged 20 years ago is no longer valid. And when you're looking at that field of mediation support, can you help maybe a younger listener who wouldn't understand fully what that entails, give us a sense of what it actually looks like and what this unit does, you know, maybe it's most sort of successful kind of support, if you will. I think that there's a real shift from from an understanding of mediation as one charismatic leader whose individual skill and wisdom would work miracles to the recognition that in mediation you need teams and you need to recognize that for a successful process, it needs to be more inclusive. It isn't just the mediator and the conflict parties. It's a much wider field of engagement. And what the Mediation Support Unit does is provide expertise, but it can be advice on issues such as process design or dedicated advice on how to mediate a ceasefire or constitutional advice. And we come in and try to be helpful. I'd like to ask a question about digital technologies, Teresa. I'm a little biased uh, given that that's the focus of my work at HD. I'm curious how the UN thinks about that, taking advantage of the opportunities that technology has to offer, but dealing with some of the challenges as well. And if I dare say, people don't necessarily think of the UN as kind of the the most innovative place, but that's something which I think you've tried to to change uh, under your leadership at the organization. It's actually been really interesting in the last few years. About three years ago, we began working originally with HD on what was called the digital toolkit for mediation but really thinking about the implications of of rapid change in the digital realm for mediation. So both thinking about how mediators operate within environments where social media, disinformation, hate speech is very, those kinds of things are very prevalent. In some cases, we're also looking at, at, at kind of the emergence of hybrid conflicts with cyber, but then also thinking about tools to support 
mediators in social media analysis, in the conduct of hybrid processes. So how do you do process design if some of the meetings might be online and some of them are in person? And how does that work? And you've used this to quite good effect in Libya, I understand. We uh, worked really closely with Stephanie Williams and her team in UNSMIL uh, in 2020. We, under her leadership, were able to realize that there were benefits of being able to reach out to a wider number of people than you could bring to a meeting. And so Stephanie used a wide variety of different tools to consult and broaden the number of voices who were coming in to the conversation and eventually broadening the number of the voices, actually putting pressure on the much smaller number of people who are in the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum. We've also in parallel done quite a lot of work on different aspects of social media. And in Libya, there was a code of conduct on social media. I know it's something which HD's done a lot of work on, including in Indonesia, kind of trying to work with conflict parties there and elsewhere about how they use social media and what what, what are the kind of rules of the road so it's not used to blow up confidentiality. We've also created a new innovation cell in the division I head, developing tools to facilitate social media analysis. Also used in Libya, a kind of digital focus group, digital dialogue platform, which allows an envoy to engage one to 1,000 and have like one-to-one conversations, but with a 1,000 people, which has proven really useful. So these kinds of tools have become part of what we can offer on mediation support. And I think it's a really, a really sort of interesting and rapidly evolving line of work. I was wondering if you could give us an example of how you've tried to broaden a peace process, particularly to be more inclusive of women. Could you tell me about an example when that worked well in your view? I think it's one of the very positive shifts in the mediation field has been a recognition of the critical importance of inclusion, meaning inclusion of women, which is what people tend to think of immediately, but more broadly of other marginalized populations as well. And I think there's been a shift of thinking that it's you know, we need to do this for reasons of equity to also a strategic understanding that more inclusive processes lead to better outcomes. But it's difficult. There's often pushback from the conflict parties who tend to be men and women and civil society and youth and other groups will push rightly for the doors to be open. So our job is to help open those doors. I think what was done in Libya in early 2021 with the Libyan Political Dialogue Forum and the different tracks of negotiation and the way that women were engaged in that process and to put pressure on on others and then brought in directly was very positive. I think recently we've learned quite a lot about the benefits of being able to use different technologies to, to run consultations with women who, in a country like Libya, are not able to travel to meetings so easily without male escorts. And it's not that We need to be careful that we don't use virtual means and digital technologies to relegate consultations with women and other constituencies such as youth to a virtual format, but do both. What you describe represents a huge sort of evolution in our field compared to where it was, say, 25 years ago. Are there particular moments you look back on when when things weren't done that way and, and you think to yourself, you know, it should never have happened like that? I think many of us who work in mediation look at what happened in Afghanistan and think in some ways that, and like Tabrahimi has said this publicly, of engaging the Taliban too late and waiting to engage with 
armed insurgency or armed actor in not just Afghanistan, but in other countries at, at a point where they're dominant militarily has its risks. And one of the challenges about thinking about the inclusive mediation and the attention that goes into expanding the field of actors involved, expanding the ways in which we think about mediation, we also can't lose track, lose sight of the core element of politics, that mediation is about politics, it's about power. Uh, people have taken up arms because they think they can win militarily, and we neglect that at our peril. You mentioned Afghanistan, Teresa, as an example of where things did not turn out the way people had hoped. You mentioned in the context of failure to engage an armed group early enough, arguably. And if you look around at what's happening today in the world, it's quite easy to be pessimistic about conflict and, and, and mediation as a tool. What would you say to a young person who might have lost faith in mediation? I think we, we have to remain optimistic even in the midst of a very adverse geopolitical situation. You have to bring things down to people and the humanity and the, the, the kind of humanitarian impulse which drives all of us in this field and recognize the value of what can be done at a local level, the value of bringing the voices of people who are suffering from conflict and bringing the voices of those who are suffering to conflict up into, into the world. I think the challenge now doesn't mean that mediation is over or dead. It's mediation and the promotion of dialogue is more vital than ever because it's about solving problems peacefully. And there are many problems out there. And the way to start solving them is through dialogue and engagement and mediation at all sorts of different levels. You've been close to some of the most important peace negotiations of our time. What piece of advice or kind of words of wisdom have you heard that have stayed with you? Humility, I think, is really critical. And I think at this point, particularly those of us who who come into conflicts as outsiders, recognizing that the conflicts are owned and lived and fought by, by those who are in conflict and, and the solutions will be owned and lived and hopefully won by them as well. I think a capacity to listen is really critical and really deeply listen. I think a degree of empathy and understanding of where the other is coming from, even when that has meant terrible, terrible things has, has been done. In this work, it's, it is easy to feel depressed when you, you see the sort of landscape of conflict that we're faced with. But we do want to give our listeners a sense of what can be achieved through mediation, if only rarely. What would you say has been your happiest moment when you've observed a process and thought, yes, I, I have faith in this tool. This, this can produce results that makes the lives of ordinary people better. I mean, looking back in recent years, I think that the, the peace agreement on Colombia is a signal achievement for Colombians, even though implementation has been complicated. It was a process that was directly negotiated between the Colombian government and the FARC with extensive international support from Cuba and Norway, foremost as guarantors. Really interesting process in terms of involvement and support 
from the UN country team during the talks in terms of bringing in victims and the central role that the victims played in the negotiations was important. And also the UN worked with the National University to, to kind of canvas wider views. So it was a really good example of a process which was strongly owned by the national actors, very effectively supported by a, a kind of the international actors who needed to be there. And, and then turned into a role where I think the UN has very credibly led a mission in support of verification. And where unusually at this moment, the Security Council has been united and supportive and, and a really key actor. And when you think back, Teresa, to the younger version of yourself and your first day in the UN, what would you have said to that younger Teresa now with the benefit of having been working in the system for 25 years? Hang on in there. And it's always interesting. I mean, the UN is fascinating. It can be intensely frustrating because it's a large and unwieldy bureaucracy. What the UN stands for in the world and the necessity of that still, despite these contested, difficult times, the norms and values and principles that the UN stand for are so essential and hold out still a beacon for hope, even though in some places it's questioned. The other thing that's great about working at the UN is the, the people, the colleagues, their diversity. The UN is an international organization. We're international civil servants. It's not just because it's interesting to work with diverse colleagues, but it's critical for the work of the UN that we have that diversity of perspectives and viewpoints and experiences to draw on. When you look back on your long career, Teresa, having been involved in so many different conflicts, is there a single moment that stays with you? For me, as a, I mean, a personal bad moment was three weeks after I spent those 10 hours up in the mountains getting my education on the war in El Salvador and the benefits of the efforts to trying to end it. And at the time, in order to get up to Honduras and before going up into the guerrilla controlled area, I'd been staying in a village community of returned refugees who were part of the kind of social base of the guerrillas. And like everything, everything takes a lot of time. So I'd spent hours listening to people's stories and hearing about their loss and getting a more human understanding of the costs of the conflict. And then I spent 10 hours with Jesus Rojas hearing about the arguments and the strategies to end the conflict. And then three weeks later, I was in walking down Sixth Avenue in Manhattan. I'd left El Salvador for, for meetings in the States and my eye was caught by a headline which was guerrilla commander killed in El Salvador and it was just Rojas's picture on the front of the newspaper. I mean, I was surprised by how impacted I was by it because it felt like you know, it was a, a blow of somebody I just spent a long time with and it was a direct blow to the peace process because it, the attack had he had been targeted because he was in the country leading that wing of the guerrillas and as somebody who was a leader for peace within the movement and it was just a reminder a stark reminder of the enemies of peace i was living in el salvador at the time i was very immersed in salvadoran reality and i was suddenly just standing in the street in manhattan feeling 
shocked and of course recognizing that on the one hand this wasn't my war or anything to do with me but personally impacted because uh, it seemed like a blow to the hope of peace and then in fact things picked up and the peace process moved forward but I do, I do remember that one moment which brought home the the fragility of peace processes in the fact that there will always be enemies of peace because the status quo of war will appeal to some. Thank you for sharing that with us, Teresa. There we have to end. Thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediators Studio. Thank you so much, Adam. A pleasure to be with you. And there we end this season of the Mediators Studio. For more great peacemaking stories from behind the scenes, make sure you subscribe. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. As this season comes to a close, I'd like to give a shout out to podcasts by our friends at the International Crisis Group. Their flagship show, Hold Your Fire, is hosted by Executive VP Richard Abwood and board member Nas Modiasebe. Each week, they talk to crisis groups experts for unique, on-the-ground analysis of today's wars and crises, essential listening for anyone interested in conflict prevention and peacemaking. Do also tune into Crisis Group's War and Peace podcast for discussions of all things Europe and its neighborhood, from Russia to Turkey and beyond. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. Special thanks go to Jason Nemirovsky, our mediator studio intern, who put his heart, humor, and musical skills into the show these last six months. It's been wonderful working with you. That's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.